Section 1D, Tuskegee Airmen, Air War in the Pacific, Air Force Independence, Cold War, and Cuban Missile Crisis. The Tuskegee Airmen In 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt directed the Army Air Corps to accept black Americans into aviation cadet training. The Air Corps, like all other components of the United States Armed Forces, decided to segregate black aviators into all black squadrons. By the end of World War II, nearly a thousand black Americans had earned their wings as army flyers. Fired by a determination to prove their patriotism, valor, and skill in combat, these black aviators, forever called the Tuskegee Airmen, struck a significant blow against racism in America. The first Tuskegee Airmen to fight were members of the 99th Fighter Squadron, a unit commanded by black West Point graduate and future Air Force General Officer, Colonel Benjamin O. Davis, Jr. On 27 January 1944, over Anzio, pilots from the 99th Fighter Squadron, flying obsolete P-40s, downed nine superior Focke Wolf 190s. As the 99th Fighter Squadron continued scoring kills, the 332nd Fighter Group, another unit manned by Tuskegee Airmen, arrived in Italy with obsolete P-39 ground attack fighters. In the spring of 1944, these segregated units transitioned to P-47 Thunderbolts and to P-51 Mustangs a month later, when they began flying bomber escort missions. The 332nd Fighter Group flew escort missions from 9 June 1944 until the German surrender in the spring of 1945. By a large margin, the Tuskegee Airmen destroyed more aircraft than they lost. They shot down 111 enemy aircraft in air-to-air -air combat, losing 66 of their own aircraft to all causes, including seven shot down. A tribute to their skill, courage, and determination, the Tuskegee Airmen amassed a distinguished combat record on 200 escort missions into Germany. While the 332nd Fighter Group fought in Europe, the segregated 477th Bomb Group, manned by Tuskegee Airmen, was activated in 1944 at Selfridge Field, Michigan. Their ability to prepare for war was hampered by frequent relocation and segregation-imposed training barriers. Nevertheless, the Tuskegee Airmen struck a significant blow to the poison of racism in America, fighting bigotry by their actions in the skies over North Africa, the Mediterranean, Sicily, Italy, Austria, Yugoslavia, France, Romania, and Germany. With their record, they dispelled myths, opened eyes, rewrote history, and prepared the United States Air Force to be the first armed service to integrate racially. Air War in the Pacific America's first combat experience in the Pacific theater of World War II occurred before the declaration of war. In early 1941, former Air Corps tactical school instructor Claire Lee Chenault organized the American Volunteer Group, known as the Flying Tigers to aid nationalist China against Japanese invaders. Famous for shark mouths painted on their Curtis P-40 Warhawks, the Flying Tigers amassed an impressive 286 confirmed victories, losing only 12 pilots before being disbanded in July 1942. 
the Japanese forces appeared invincible during the first six months of conflict, and America needed a strong offensive strike against the Japanese to boost sagging morale. On 18 April 1942, Lieutenant Colonel James Jimmy Doolittle led 16 North American B-25 Mitchell medium bombers launching from the carrier USS Hornet in a bombing raid on various targets in Tokyo, Kobe, and Nagoya. The Doolittle raid inflicted little damage, but the gesture shocked Japanese military leaders and cheered the American public. Upon his return to the United States in May 1942, Doolittle received the Medal of Honor and promotion to Brigadier General. Not many flyers have had a popular song written about them, but an exception was a soft-spoken United States Army Air Force enlisted man, John D. Foley. Although he never received aerial gunnery training, he volunteered as a gunner and was assigned to a B-26 crew. On his first mission, Foley shot down at least one Japanese enemy aircraft. Other 19th Bomb Squadron members confirmed his victory and he was nicknamed Johnny Zero by a war correspondent. Corporal Foley became a hero and the subject of a popular song, Johnny Got a Zero. Commercial firms capitalized on his fame and produced such items as Johnny Zero, watches and boots. During his 31 other Pacific combat missions, Foley shared in the destruction of at least six more enemy aircraft and survived three crashes. Malaria forced his return to the United States in 1943 where he toured factories promoting war production. He volunteered to fly again and completed 31 missions over Europe. He returned to the United States again and was preparing for a third overseas tour when World War II ended. But before the war ended, Foley became an Army Air Force legend by being decorated a total of eight times for heroism, including personal recognition by Generals MacArthur, Eisenhower, and Doolittle. Naval aviation played a vital role in the Pacific War. Under the leadership of Admirals Chester Nimitz, Frank Jack Fletcher, Raymond Spruance, and William Bull Halsey, United States carrier-based aviation proved the value of air power at sea. The Battle of Coral Sea, fought 4 through 8 May 1942, marked the first naval battle fought entirely by air. At the Battle of Midway, 4 June 1942, United States Navy pilots sank four Japanese carriers and turned the tide of the war in the Pacific. The primary United States Army Air Force's contribution to the Pacific counterattack was made by the 5th Air Force, attached to the Southwest Pacific Theater under General Douglas MacArthur's command. While Admiral Nimitz' carrier task forces struck from the Central Pacific, MacArthur's command thrust across New Guinea toward the Philippines. Because of the Europe First strategy, 5th Air Force flew 2nd string aircraft out of primitive bases, struggling to overcome its low resource priority level and a 10,000 mile supply chain. In July 1942, Major General George C. Kenney assumed command of the 5th Air Force. Kenney maximized the resource-poor command's combat power. In a theater where range dominated employment decisions, Kenny used the Lockheed P-38 Lightning with locally developed 150-gallon drop tanks. 
Kenny encouraged an ingenious subordinate, Madge Paul Pappy Gunn, to mount quad .50 caliber machine guns into the nose of an A-20 and B-25 aircraft, creating deadly attack planes. Other 5th Air Force innovations included parachutes attached to fragmentation bombs and low-level skip bombing techniques. And even lower a priority than 5th Air Force, Allied forces in the China-Burma-India theater faced logistical challenges at the end of the war's longest supply chain. Called to transport vital supplies across the Himalayas, air transport command crews flying C-46s and C-47s braved perilous weather conditions to deliver 650,000 tons of supplies to Chinese and American forces. Flying the Hump was one of the most hazardous military air operations of World War II. Enterprise architect William H. Tunner developed many maintenance and cargo handling techniques that later proved invaluable during the Berlin airlift. In addition to air transport command efforts in the China-Burma-India theater, the 1st Air Commando Group, led by Lieutenant Colonel Philip G. Cochrane and John R. Allison, provided assistance to British Shindit forces conducting long-range penetration missions against the Japanese during Operation Thursday, using unconventional air warfare to support British ground forces. America's first air commandos demonstrated that air power could support unconventional warfare any place, any time. The first air commando group also demonstrated its ingenuity, conducting the first helicopter combat rescue. Allied soldiers, sailors, and marines pushed back the borders of the Japanese Empire and airmen sought to destroy Japan through strategic bombardment. General Arnold hoped to clinch victory through air power alone in order to avoid a costly land invasion. In November 1939, Air Corps leaders selected the primary campaign instrument, the Boeing XB-29, with a pressurized crew compartment, remotely controlled guns, and new radial engines. The B-29 was an aircraft of unprecedented size and capability. The United States Army Air Forces ordered 1,664 before the prototype had even flown. The rush to produce the plane led to substantial technical problems. Nevertheless, by April 1944, B-29s appeared in the China-Burma-India theater to conduct Operation Matterhorn, the designation for B-29 operations out of bases in India and China to carry out strategic bombing of Japanese force. At first, XX Bomber Command crews attempted to reproduce high-altitude daylight precision bombing with disappointing results. Flying from bases in China with logistical staging from India, XX Bomber Command engine problems were amplified by distance and weather. By October 1944, B-29 operations shifted to Saipan, significantly reducing supply lines. Former Air Corps Tactical School instructor Haywood S. Hansel renewed efforts for a daylight precision bombing campaign. Impatient with the results, General Arnold replaced Hansel in January 1945 with Major General Curtis E. LeMay, a proven combat commander from the European theater. LeMay drastically altered B-29 tactics. 
To avoid the jet stream and high altitude engine problems, LeMay ordered low altitude night attacks with bombers stripped of defensive machine guns, reduced fuel loads, and increased bomb loads. Much like the Royal Air Force, LeMay's B-29s relied on darkness for protection and pummeled enemy cities with incendiary bombs. From March through August 1945, American firebomb raids destroyed 66 Japanese cities and burned 178 square miles of urban landscape. Civilian casualties were severe. In one raid against Tokyo, an estimated 80,000 people perished. Following a successful atomic test on 18 July 1945, Allied powers issued an ultimatum on 26 July calling for the Japanese government to surrender or suffer prompt and utter destruction. Specially modified B-29s from the 393rd Bombardment Squadron, a component of the 509th Composite Group, delivered the first operational atomic bombs. On 6 August 1945, Colonel Paul Tibbets piloted the Enola Gay, which dropped a uranium bomb, known as Little Boy, over Hiroshima, destroying nearly 5 square miles of the city and killing 80,000 people. Japan did not surrender. On 9 August 1945, the B-29 boxcar, commanded by Major Charles W. Sweeney, released a plutonium bomb called Fat Man on Nagasaki. Because Nagasaki was partially protected by hilly terrain, the bomb devastated 1.5 square miles, killed 35,000, and injured 60,000. Faced with a defeated army, destroyed Navy and Air Force, burned cities, a declaration of war by the Soviet Union, and atomic weapons, the Japanese government surrendered 14 August 1945. In the Pacific theater, air power proved even more decisive than in Europe. The industrial might of the United States overwhelmed the Japanese forces. The geographic circumstances and immense distances involved made air power the preeminent weapon. Air Force Independence and the Cold War With victory in World War II, the American public returned to normal life. Air power and military affairs, in general, decreased in importance. From a wartime strength of more than 79,000 aircraft and 2.4 million people, forces dwindled to 24,000 aircraft and 304,000 people by May 1947. Nevertheless, air power's impact on warfare led to the realization of Billy Mitchell's dream. On 26 July 1947, President Harry S. Truman signed into law the National Security Act of 1947, which provided for a separate department of the Air Force. On 18 September 1947, Stuart Symington became the first Secretary of the Air Force and officially established the United States Air Force as an independent, co-equal service. Under the leadership of General Spatz as the first Chief of Staff, Air Force, and that of his successor, General Hoyt S. Vandenberg, the Air Force clarified roles and missions and organized to meet the challenges of the growing Cold War. In many areas, the establishment of the Air Force had little impact on the lives of most airmen until months or even years had passed. What were designed as organic service units were taken over as newly designated Air Force units. Units that provided a common service to both the Army and the Air Force were left intact. 
Until 1950, for example, if an airman became seriously ill, he was likely treated by army doctors in an army hospital. There was also, at first, no change in appearance. The distinctive blue uniforms of the United States Air Force were introduced only after large stocks of army clothing were used up. Familiar terms slowly gave way to new labels. By 1959, enlisted airmen ate in dining halls rather than mess halls, were eyed warily by air police instead of military police, and bought necessities at the base exchange instead of the post exchange. Initially, the enlisted rank system remained as it had been in the United States Army Air Force. Corporal was removed from NCO status in 1950. Then, in 1952, the Air Force officially changed the names of the lower four ranks from Private to Airman Basic, Private First Class to Airman Third Class, Corporal to Airman Second Class, and Sergeant to Airman First Class. These changes were in response to a development that surfaced during World War II, and the rank structure will continue to evolve over time. Promotion and specialization went hand-in-hand -hand with training in the new Air Force. When the new organization established Air Force Specialty Codes as standard designations for functional and technical specialties, qualification for an Advanced Air Force Specialty Code became part of their criteria for promotion. During the late 1940s, the Air Force also began an airman career program that attempted to encourage long-term career for enlisted specialists. The Berlin Crisis awakened Americans to the impact of the Cold War between the United States and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. On 24 June 1948, the Soviets blockaded railroad and road corridors serving the 2.5 million residents of West Berlin, deep within Communist East Germany. United States Air Forces in Europe, Commander General LeMay, organized a makeshift airlift of food, medicine, and coal. United States Air Forces in Europe C-47 and C-54 cargo aircraft established a precise schedule of flights every 3 minutes, 24 hours a day. After the first month, Major General William H. Tunner assumed command of an expanded effort that would include 300 American and 100 British aircraft flown by air crews who would apply lessons learned while flying the hump during World War II. On 15 April 1949, 1,398 aircraft delivered a one-day record 12,941 tons of supplies. By 1949, the Soviets acknowledged the airlift's success and lifted the blockade. Operation Vitals tallied 277,804 flights delivering 2.3 million tons of supplies. This nonviolent use of air power diffused a potentially disastrous confrontation. Throughout the airlift, enlisted personnel served as cargo managers and loaders, with a major assist from German civilians, air traffic controllers, communication specialties, and weather and navigation specialists. Of all of the enlisted functions, perhaps the most critical to the success of the airlift was maintenance. The Soviets' eventual capitulation and dismantling of the surface blockade represented one of the great Western victories of the Cold War, without a bomb having been dropped, and laid the foundation for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO.
1948 Berlin crisis and 1949 Soviet detonation of an atomic device motivated the Air Force to improve war readiness. As the new Strategic Air Command commander, General LeMay emphasized the rigorous training, exacting performance standards, and immediate readiness. In the late 1940s, SAC incorporated the B-50, a more powerful version of the B-29, and the massive Convair B-36 Peacemaker, the first bomber with intercontinental range, into the inventory. Behind the scenes, the Air Force conducted a highly secret, extensive electronic reconnaissance program that included covert flights over the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic to assess communist air defenses. Jet aircraft technological breakthroughs changed the face of aviation. Although the Bell XP-59-era comet first flew 1 October 1942, the Lockheed P-80, later redesignated F-80, entered service in December 1945 as the Air Force's first operational jet fighter. On 14 October 1947, Charles Chuck Yeager seized headlines as the first man to break the sound barrier. His Bell X-1 glamorous Glenis reached the Mach 1.06 at 43,000 feet after a launch from a B-29 mothership. In the early 1950s, Strategic Air Command upgraded to an all-jet bomber force, activating the Boeing B-47 Stratojet and the Boeing B-52 Stratofortress. On 25 June 1950, Communist North Korea launched a massive invasion of the United States-backed South Korea. Three days later, American B-26 bombers attacked advancing North Korean troops in the first major flare-up of the Cold War. For six weeks, Far East Air Forces, commanded by Lieutenant General George E. Stratemeyer, gained air superiority to help United Nations forces shut down the North Korean assault. The initial phase of the Korean War illustrated the dangers of being unprepared as American airmen struggled to relearn close air support and interdiction skills. In addition, the F-80's limited range inhibited the time over target required for tactical operations. About 100 Far East Air Force's Bomber Command B-29s conducted strategic operations to destroy the enemy's will and capacity to fight. Although United Nations forces controlled the skies and destroyed North Korea's industrial base, multiple limitations frustrated hopes of a decisive victory. General MacArthur's amphibious assault at Incheon and successive operations shattered the North Korean army, but the United Nations' advance into North Korea led to communist Chinese intervention. The entry of half a million Chinese troops in November 1950 drastically changed the war. Within weeks, advanced Soviet-made MiG-15 fighters appeared. Flown by North Korean, Chinese, and Soviet pilots, the MiG-15 outperformed American F-51, F-80, and F-84 aircraft. Lieutenant Russell Brown, flying an F-80C, shot down a MiG-15 in the world's first all-jet air battle on 8 November 1950. In response to the enemy's superior speed and altitude, Air Force leaders rushed the North American F-86 Sabre into action. 
the F-86 matched the MiG speed and proved a more stable gun platform. On 9 November 1950, Corporal Harry Levine of the 91st Strategic Reconnaissance Squadron, serving as a gunner, scored the first B-29 victory over a jet by downing a MiG-15. Levine's victory was the first of 27 MiGs shot down by B-29 gunners during the course of the war. Sergeant Billy Beach, a tail gunner on an Okinawa-based B-29, shot down two MiGs on 12 April 1951, a feat unmatched by any other gunner. His own plane was so shot up, however, that it and the crew barely survived an emergency landing with collapsed gear at an advanced fighter strip. As the war on the ground settled into stalemate, F-86s battled over MiG Alley, where superior training and experience prevailed. F-86 pilots destroyed 792 MiGs and 18 other enemy aircraft at a cost of 76 Sabres lost to MiGs and 142 to other causes. During the Korean War, the Air Rescue Service medically evacuated more than 9,600 wounded soldiers and rescued nearly 1,000 personnel shot down over enemy territory. In addition, Air Resupply and Communication Service wings executed unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency operations against enemy forces. During the Korean War, a new group of Air Force pilots entered the pantheon of fighter aces. The F-86 pilots established a remarkable 10 to 1 kill ratio. Captain Joseph McConnell, a B-24 navigator in World War II, led the pack with a score of 16, closely followed by Captain James Jabara, who tallied 15 kills. Jabara gained recognition as the world's first jet ace. Unlike the mass squadron formations often flown in World War II, Korean war pilots devised new tactics based on flights of only four F-86s. Despite success in the air war, the Korean War frustrated American air power. Accustomed to the commitment of World War II, Korean War era leaders struggled under political, technological, and resource limitations inherent in the Cold War. Worried that the conflict in Korea foreshadowed a Soviet invasion of Europe, American policymakers limited operations in Asia in order to build up North Atlantic Treaty Organization forces. Nevertheless, United Nations forces repelled two communist invasions of South Korea, and American air power secured the skies against enemy air attack. After the Korean conflict, Air Force missile and space capabilities developed rapidly. In late 1953, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Research and Development, Trevor Gardner, convened a group of experts known as the Teapot Committee to examine the field of long-range missiles. The committee's 10th February 1954 report recommended accelerating intercontinental ballistic missile development. Based on the recommendation, the Air Research and Development Command, on 1 July 1954, established the Western Development Division in Inglewood, California, to develop and field intercontinental ballistic missiles. On 2 August 1954, Brigadier General Bernard Schriever assumed command of the new organization. 
Concurrent with efforts to develop long-range missiles, the United States also pursued space-based technology that could provide accurate information on Soviet military intentions. On 27 October 1954, Air Force senior leaders followed the recommendation of the RAND Corporation's Project Feedback Report, issuing Weapon System Requirement No. 5, directing development of an electro-optical reconnaissance satellite. Weapon System Requirement No. 5 later became Weapon System 117L. The scope of Weapon System 117L eventually broadened to include other space-based missions such as meteorology, missile warning, and multispectral imaging. On 4 October 1957, the course of missile and satellite development changed when the Soviet Union successfully launched the Sputnik 1 satellite into Earth orbit. The Soviet success marked the beginning of the space age and sparked the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. Over the next two decades, the Air Force played a major role in the developing national space programs, assuming the mantle of America's Air and Space Force. In response to the Sputnik 1 launch, President Eisenhower accelerated United States civil and military space efforts, a decision that would prove crucial throughout the Cold War. In 1958, the Air Force developed plans for a manned military presence in space, but President Eisenhower reserved manned missions for the National Aeronautics and Space Agency. However, the Air Force's plan formed the basis of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. The Atlas rocket, which began as a United States Army Air Corps ballistic missile in October 1945, was used to launch the Mercury missions. The Titan II booster, also originally a ballistic missile, launched the Gemini astronauts. In fact, the Air Force and its contractors planned, built, and launched all of the Titan II rockets in the Project Gemini. In 1960, the National Reconnaissance Office was formed to take charge of highly classified reconnaissance satellites. President Eisenhower undertook several initiatives to help prevent a surprise nuclear attack against the United States, including establishing the classified Corona Satellite Photo Reconnaissance Program. This system, known publicly as the Discoverer Research Program, achieved its first successful launch of the Discoverer 13, 10 August 1960. Corona employed a payload capsule that detitioned from the orbiter, returned to Earth by parachute, and was captured by an aircraft. Discoverer 14 launched a week after recovering Discoverer 13, shot over 3,000 feet of reconnaissance film from space, heralding the beginning of America's space-based photo-reconnaissance capability. The Air Force concentrated on unmanned missions to fulfill national security needs. Space reconnaissance satellites, for instance, supported strategic deterrence throughout the Cold War, providing invaluable knowledge of the Soviet Union's nuclear inventory and verifying arms control treaty compliance. Space systems also provided early warning of any missile attack on North America, and worldwide communications platforms for strategic command and control. Cuban Missile Crisis 1962 In 1959, Fidel Castro overthrew the dictator of Cuba, initially promising free elections but instead he instituted a socialist dictatorship. Hundreds of thousands of Cubans fled their island, many coming to the United States. 
In late 1960, President Eisenhower authorized the Central Intelligence Agency to plan an invasion of Cuba using Cuban exiles as troops. President Eisenhower hoped that, in conjunction with the invasion, the Cuban people would overthrow Castro and install a pro-United States government. The president's second term ended before the plan could be implemented. President John F. Kennedy ordered the invasion to proceed. In mid-April 1961, the Cuban exiles landed at the Bay of Pigs and suffered a crushing defeat. Following the failure of the United States-supported Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba by Cuban exiles in April 1961, the Soviet Union increased economic and military aid to Cuba. In August 1962, the Soviets and Cubans started constructing intermediate and medium-range ballistic missile complexes on the island. Suspicious, the United States intelligence community called for photographic investigation and verification of the activity. In October, Strategic Air Command U-2 aircraft deployed to McCoy Air Force Base, Florida, and began flying high-altitude reconnaissance flights over Cuba. On 15 October, photographs obtained on flights the previous day confirmed the construction of launch pads that, when completed, could be used to employ nuclear-armed missiles with a range of up to 5,000 miles. Eleven days later, RF-101s and RB-66s began conducting low-level reconnaissance flights, verifying data gathered by the U-2s and gathering pre-strike intelligence. In the event an invasion of Cuba became necessary, Tactical Air Command deployed F-84, F-100, F-105, RB-66, and KB-50 aircraft to numerous bases in Florida. Meanwhile, Strategic Air Command prepared for a general war by dispersing nuclear-capable B-47 aircraft to approximately 40 airfields in the United States and keeping numerous B-52 heavy bombers in the air ready to strike. Meanwhile, President Kennedy and his advisors on the national security team debated the most effective course of action. Many on the Joint Chiefs of Staff favored invasion, but President Kennedy took the somewhat less drastic step of imposing a naval blockade on the island, which was designed to prevent any more material from reaching Cuba. Still technically an act of war, the blockade nevertheless had the advantage of not turning the Cold War into a hot one. Confronted with a photographic evidence of missiles, the Soviet Union initially responded belligerently. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev accused the United States of degenerate imperialism and declared that the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic would not observe the illegal blockade. In the ensuing days, Khrushchev softened and then hardened his position and demands. Tensions increased on 27 October, when Cuban air defenses shot down a U-2 piloted by Major Rudolf Anderson. The Joint Chiefs of Staff recommended an immediate airstrike against Cuba, but President Kennedy decided to wait. The increasing tempo in the military, however, continued unabated. While United States military preparations continued, the United States agreed not to invade Cuba in exchange for removal of Soviet missiles from the island. Secretly, the United States also agreed to remove American missiles from Turkey. The Soviets turned their Cuban-bound ships around, packed up the missiles in Cuba, and dismantled the launch pads. As the work progressed, the Air Force started to deploy aircraft back to home bases and lower the alert status. The Cuban Missile Crisis brought the United States and the Soviet Union 
dangerously close to nuclear war. The world breathed a sigh of relief when it ended. The strategic and tactical power of the United States Air Force, coupled with the will and ability to use it, provided the synergy to deter nuclear war with the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic and convince the Soviet leaders to remove the nuclear weapons from Cuba.